Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Dress listeners, I know many of you will join April and I when we express that we were quite saddened by the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg this past September, the age of 87 years old. What a life that woman lived, Mm -hmm. April. I mean, she was just incredible. Trailblazing lawyer, pioneering women's rights activist, groundbreaking Supreme Court justice turned pop culture icon. I mean, this woman was a hero to millions of people around the world. Absolutely. And I I don't even know if I was sad. I literally cried. I like sat and sobbed on my couch. Now I'm getting a little emotional thinking about right now. But okay, back to it. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or Ruth Bader, was born in Brooklyn, New York on March 15th, 1933. And she studied law at both Harvard Law School and also Columbia Law School during the 1950s. And this, of course, was a time where women were really still fighting to be taken seriously and accepted as lawyers. She went on to make a career and name for herself fighting for gender equality. And among many of her accomplishments, she was instrumental in progressing the causes of women's rights the women's rights movement, and famously litigating sex discrimination cases for the American Civil Liberties Union during the 1970s. But it's perhaps through her more recent role as a Supreme Court justice that many of us are most familiar with her work. President Bill Clinton nominated Ginsburg to the country's highest court in 1993, and her appointment made her the very first Jewish woman and only the second ever woman after Sandra Day O'Connor to serve on the esteemed court. And when Ginsburg passed away this past September, she had served on the court for 27 years. Yeah, which is amazing. And in commemoration of her extraordinary life and her legacy, we wanted to dedicate a special episode of Dress to her today, which is, of course, election week still, cast when this will air. <laughs> So this week is all about politics in one fashion or another. And as many of our listeners know, dress played no small role in her career and is actually one of the many ways that she is being commemorated today. And, you know, there is one article of dress, of course, in particular, of what she became very synonymous with, Cass, right? Yep. Okay. Her collars. Her collars. <laughs> Over the years, Ginsburg has rocketed to celebrity and even pop icon status. And part and parcel to that status is her signature collars, which of course were worn on top of her black court robe. Today, an image of a collar is actually all that's required in many instances to even evoke her presence and her memory. But these collars were more than a mere fashion statement. What might at first glance be perceived as an expression of femininity takes on powerful connotations when you consider Ginsburg's presence in a male-dominated court. And as we will learn, the collars also became a means for Ginsburg to visually express her approval or most famously her dissent Mm -hmm. without ever having to say a word. Yes. And neckwear has been a staple of Justice Ginsburg's attire since the beginning of her tenure on the Supreme Court. So throughout her career, uh, she wore both jabot 
and also flat collars. And we do think that it is important to clarify the difference between the two because while Ginsburg certainly wore jabot collars over the years, not all of her collars were jabot, nor is the style, that particular style, the one which she is most famous for. So we read a lot of articles about her that use this term jabot as an umbrella term for all of her collars, but there is definitely a distinction. And a jabot basically consists of a neck band that has fabric suspended from it, falling from the throat. So so think think Tom Cruise's costumes in Interview with a Vampire, perhaps. Which, <laughs> yes. by the way, is one of my all-time <laughs> favorite movies. I bet I've seen it, like, at least 25 times. Oh, me too. Me too. Maybe that's a future episode. Uh, jabot is exactly the type of collar Ginsburg wore for her first official court portrait in 1993. The jabot is very simple. It appears to be made from high-quality cotton fabric. It's very bright, white, self-striped, suspended from a green and red collar that uh, peeks out from beneath her black court robe. Her hair is pulled back in a low chignon. Her eyeglasses and gold clip-on earrings complete her professional look, a formula of which would really not change much over the ensuing 27 years with the exception of, we argue, the jabot, because the jabot is not the now iconic Ginsburg signature collar. That style of collar that we're more familiar with surrounds the neckline and lays flat across her chest and shoulders. When asked by the Washington Post in 2009 about why she started wearing collars, Ginsburg replied, quote, the standard robe is made for a man because it has a place for the shirt to show and also the tie. So Sandra Day O'Connor and I thought that it would be appropriate if we included as part of our robe something typical of a woman. So I have many, many collars, end quote. So <laughs> this is so cool that Ginsburg and O'Connor like found this solidarity um, together in their approach to dressing and really bringing a sort of feminine touch into this historically you know, male-dominated court and also therefore the way that they dressed. Um, and so this is this is not particularly surprising considering they represented the first and second woman to ever be elected to the Supreme Court. You know, up until this time, the Supreme Court was totally a boys club and prior to the 1960s, an entirely white boys club. So for 192 years prior to Ronald Reagan appointing O'Connor to the country's highest court in 1981, and as Ginsburg just alluded to this also, they had all been wearing the same thing. All the men on the court had been wearing this exact same thing, this black robe. Right. And so a little bit about the history behind that. So the tradition of judges wearing uniformed robes came to the American colonies from Britain, where they had been worn since at least the 14th century as a level of distinction and status. And first it was worn by, you know, people like academics and scholars, and then later by people like lawyers and judges. And they also, I should add, wore wigs and more on that in a minute. But in the aftermath of the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson apparently was eager to shed all British traditions, you know, a lot of these kind of symbolic traditions, and that included judges' robes. But he was challenged, apparently, by John Adams, who was a lawyer, and Adams really valued what these robes symbolized and embodied for his profession. In the end, apparently, the men reached a compromise because judges of the high court would wear and keep the black robes, but they would lose these wigs. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, if you Google British High Court, you'll see what the British High Court continues to wear to this very day, although I do think it's slowly changing. So um, many judges in Britain and former British colonies still maintain 
these wigs Mm -hmm. and these highly formalized robes. So check it out. Today, the black robe in America is the chief visual signifier of judge status, arguably. And who knew it was a uniform April with medieval origins all the way back to 14th century. So fascinating. Yeah. And O'Connor actually penned an article on the history of the black judge robes for Smithsonian Magazine back in 2013. And she reveals something that I found quite fascinating, which is that the wearing of black robes is a matter of tradition, not regulation. She writes, quote, there are no rules that dictate what judges or justices must wear on the bench, nor is there even a common source for Supreme Court robes. The court's internal correspondence suggests that In the 19th century, the justices all wore black silk robes from a single tailor. By the 20th century, other materials were often used, and judges selected their robes from those available to college graduates and choir singers. (laughs) So, for the most part, we all have chosen to wear a very similar style of black judicial robe. And this is something that she really appreciates because she goes on in that article to say, I am fond of the symbolism of this tradition. It shows that all of us judges are engaged in upholding the Constitution and the rule of the law. We have a common responsibility. And she actually writes that one of her fondest memories of her experience on the Supreme Court was the camaraderie associated with the ceremony of putting on the court robe. And I never even heard of this or considered this. I think this is so fascinating. So she says that on argument days, a buzzer sounds about five minutes before the oral argument starts. The justices go to the robing room. There's a robing room, which is so interesting, (laughs) um, which is apparently the court's version of a locker room. Each justice has a locker. Attendants help the justices fasten their robes. Then the justices, without fail, engage in a wonderful custom. Each justice shakes the hand of every other justice before walking into the courtroom. An important reminder that Despite the justices' occasional differences in opinion, the court is a place of collegiality and common purpose. Yeah, and and so, like, more than just a mere garment, the justice robe really holds this symbolic power for the society within which these judges serve and also for the individual wearers themselves. And thus is the power of clothing cast, as we know. That's why we make this show. Um, You know, and that O'Connor really valued the historical and cultural significance of the robe is made all the more interesting by her edition of the Jabot. And, And it's also interesting to note, Cass, that What was seen as a decidedly feminine touch by O'Connor in the 1980s was actually a masculine touch historically. And this is especially true during the 17th and 18th centuries when these jabot collars became a mark of European and American male distinction. You know, henceforth, this reference that I made earlier to Interview with a Vampire. (laughs) Um, But the jabot, along with the cravat, which is also a long piece of cloth looped around the neck and tied at the front, these are all arguably these these predecessors to the modern-day tie that we are all very familiar with today. And as the only woman on the Supreme Court for 12 years, O'Connor managed to distinguish herself even further by subverting this historically male garment. Consciously or not, O'Connor's accessory made a powerful statement and one that Ginsburg would follow and build upon. Like her predecessor, Ginsburg also would feminize her robe with the addition of collars. But unlike O'Connor, Ginsburg intended her collars to project very specific messages over the years. And we're going to hear about that more after a brief sponsor break.
Welcome back. We are a history podcast after all, so we would be remiss <laughs> not to share a little bit of collar history with you all while we're on this topic. So lace collars are especially fascinating because historically, they were not necessarily a gendered garment. And, and really all the proof you need is to go into any museum and look at all of the 16th and 17th century paintings, which depict European aristocracy, you know, decked out in their ruffs and then these high lace collars, you know, that handmade white lace collar is really one of the ultimate displays of distinction, high status, and wealth during these centuries. You know, and also this widespread high neck collar would also kind of frame a wearer's head before literally falling to the shoulder by the mid-17th century. And men's falling bands, as they were known, stood at the neck before falling, very much similar to the collared shirt that we all know today, but but decidedly more extravagant and dramatic. And women's collars laid more flat across their shoulders at the top and over the neckline of their dresses, generally speaking. Right, and it was really in the 19th century that lace collars took on their distinctively feminine connotations. Of course, when we talk about gendered clothing, as we have discussed many times in the show, we're talking about the societal constructs of gender and those, you know, kind of implications that society put on the expectations of certain types of garments. So within the wake of enlightenment thinking, fashion and adornment, and by consequence, lace collars, was entirely left to the quote-unquote irrational feminine sex (laughs) um, by the beginning of the 1800s, while the more rational men no longer had time for such trifles and adopted their uniform of sobriety, aka the beginning of the darkly colored suits. Uh, In the 19th century, wide Bertha collars, as they were known, um, were in fashion, as were smaller collars that would line the top of of a blouse. For women, we should add. For women. Yeah, and these, because they were so valued, you would take them off to wash um, the garment separately and then you'd stitch it back on. And that's why so many of them survived just on their own in museum collections. And this sort of smaller lace collar that we're talking about um, that lined the top of blouses, the use of that really continued into the early 20th century before lace overwhelmingly fell out of favor That is, until Ginsburg decided to revive it. Yes, because in 2014, Justice Ginsburg gave journalist Katie Couric a rare insider look into her Supreme Court closet. And opening the giant doors revealed Ginsburg's collars hung neatly all in a row. And Ginsburg shared with Couric that her favorite collar was a simple white crocheted number acquired in Cape Town, Africa. And she also shared the story behind a jabot that she had acquired at the Metropolitan Museum of Art's gift shop, which was actually a replica of a collar worn by the opera singer Placido Domingo in Verdi's opera Stifiello. Ginsburg's collection was also comprised of many gifts, which included a collar made from French lace and adorned with 49 Hawaiian beach shells, which was presented to her by the University of Hawaii's law school after she had visited in 2017. The collar was actually made by the school's associate dean, who was an alumni of the school from 85, Renette Kawakami. Actually, another collar that she has in her collection was made by a fellow FIT alum and founder of the Brooklyn Lace Guild, Elena Carnegie Liu, who recently revealed April that she was commissioned by Columbia Law School in 2018 to create a lace collar for Justice Ginsburg that was commemorating her 25th year on the Supreme Court. So it's a really beautiful collar. 
the graphic is kind of a bunch of 25s that were handmade in lace by Elena. And it was, she used a combination of torsion, bobbin lace, and half stitch. And according to Elena, this collar took about 300 <laughs> hours to make. Um, yeah, handmade lace is, is no small feat. Incredible amount of work. Yes. And Ginsburg certainly had an incredible collection of all of these, but there are two collars in particular which have received the most press, of course, her majority opinion collar and her dissent collar. And a gift from her law clerks, her majority opinion collar is the collar which she told Kirk that she wears, quote, when I'm announcing an opinion for the court, an opinion that she agrees with, of course, and it is comprised of a gold chain at the top onto which crocheted flower designs are attached. And her descent collar is perhaps fittingly a sparkly black bibbed number from all places Banana Republic, which surprised <laughs> me a little bit. Um, it stands in direct opposition to her white and lighter colored collars and for good reason. As Ginsburg told Couric, she wears it because, quote, it looks fitting for descents. For reference, this collar was worn after the day Trump was elected, among many other times that she dissented with what the Supreme Court ultimately decided. Um, on dissenting, Ginsburg actually once said, quote, dissents speak to a future age. It's not simply to say, my colleagues are wrong and I would do it this way. But the greatest dissents do become court opinions and gradually over time, their views become the dominant view. So that's the dissenter's hope that they are writing not for today, but for tomorrow. So in the wake of Ginsburg's death, there were a slew of articles and fashion publications commemorating her passing with a discussion of her famous callers, but none so poignant as that by New York Times fashion critic Vanessa Friedman, who aptly reminded us in this article, which was published shortly after Ginsburg's death, that, quote, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's lace collar wasn't an accessory, it was a gauntlet. Friedman points out that Ginsburg defied gender stereotype, and we're talking about both the domestic and the feminist alike. She writes, but there's almost nothing as classically girly as lace, that fragile ethereal fabric associated largely with decoration. By wearing it and wearing it consistently, Justice Ginsburg, famously tiny, famously tough, was daring the world to revise that judgment. Why could a woman not be both feminine and substantive? As Mary Lou Luther, the creative director of the Fashion Group International once said, and I believe she said this about Ginsburg, she said, for this woman who has championed women's rights, it's lovely to see that she's championing ladies' rights. It's okay to be a lady. You don't have to be a CEO in pantsuits. <laughs> Which is also okay. So there's that. Yeah. But uh, Friedman continues, quote, to pay attention to what a powerful woman wears is often dismissed as a way to denigrate her. But not to pay attention in this case is to disrespect the attention to detail that has marked Justice Ginsburg's work in all its dimensions. After all, a gauntlet may once have been a metal glove, but sometimes it can also be a lace collar. And that doesn't make it any less effective at challenging an antiquated status quo, end quote. And Ginsburg, you know, she really did challenge the status quo on so many levels and in so many ways. Her symbolic clothing choices were this fitting extension of a woman who saw a world where, that she did not agree with, and she dedicated her life into making it a better place. A place now occupied by Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and now Amy Coney Barrett. 
Regardless of your political affiliation or beliefs, all of these women are indebted to the women before them who have paved the way. Women like Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who fought tirelessly so that all women would have an equal voice and opportunity. Ginsburg trailblazed a place for women at the highest court in the country. Quote, we are at last beginning to relegate to the history books the idea of the token woman, she once said, and that is in large part to Ginsburg and what she has represented for so many women. Not all heroes wear capes. Sometimes they wear lace collars. They sure do. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider adding some Ruth Bader Ginsburg collared chic into your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And by the way, you can because Banana Republic just reissued Ginsburg's iconic descent collar, but you can also find numerous patterns online to make your own. They even come in necklace, pen, earring forms. You can buy a t-shirt with it on it. And of course, if you want to learn more about Ginsburg's remarkable life, you must check out the documentary RGB and the film On the Basis of Sex, both of which are a must watch. Yes. And if you have time this week or next week or whenever you listen to this episode to rate and review us on iTunes, we would love hearing from you. You can also write to us with your own fashion history mystery requests which we do on Thursdays as mini-sodes. Um, you can write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. Also, please be sure and follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. And we are on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes this show possible each week. Catch you soon. 